wonder, I wonder if I could uh, grab your attention. Am I working? I think I am. Yeah, great. If you could uh, find your seats, that'd be helpful. Just uh, the regulars amongst us will know that uh, it's normally the case in Oasis where we, uh, we have a snazzy little bit of music that kind of introduces our preaching messages so that we can get you into the groove and get you settled before somebody starts talking to you. Uh, you'll notice that we haven't got one for the current series yet. That may change, but between now and then, I thought, how we do Father Abraham as many sons? <laughs> you ready? Um, some of you, I know you want me to do it, don't you? But I He did have many sons, did Father Abraham. So uh, we'll see. Right arm, left arm, right leg, left leg, turn up, nod your head. Thank you very much. If you're a visitor here and you're thinking, what is this bloke doing? <laughs> Forgive me. Um, I want to dive straight in this morning, actually. Uh, we are in a series based on Abraham called Faith for Fruit. And uh, that story is based, as many of us I'm sure will know, in the book of Genesis. Genesis, the first book in the Bible. And the word Genesis means origin or beginnings. That's one of its meanings. We'll find out what the other one is in a minute. Origin or beginnings. And right at the beginning of Genesis, in Genesis 1 verse 1, there is an introduction to mankind, to God. In the beginning, God. And so in the, in the book of beginnings, in the book of origins, the first thing that God wants to do is introduce himself to mankind. As if he's saying, hello everybody, I am here, I am real, and I want a relationship with you. That's what Genesis 1 verse 1 is all about. And God, in that introduction, has been the focal point of speculation across humankind ever since. Everybody talks about the existence of God or the non-existence of God. Have you ever thought about that? Why do we speculate about God so much? The answer to that question is because God wants us to. Because he's put himself into our psyche, into our thinking. He wants us to have an opinion on him. And over the centuries, God wants us to find him and have a relationship with him. And more than that, God doesn't just introduce himself who's somebody there at the beginning, if you like, a sort of innocent bystander that's just watching it all happen as the world happens and evolves and whatever your theology is on that. It's, he's someone who's just saying, oh yeah, this is interesting. He actually claims to be directly responsible for all of it. So Genesis has God coming in, saying, here I am, and then being involved in all the big moments of life kicking off. So he is responsible for the beginning of life itself. That's what it says in Genesis. He initiated life. God is behind the beginnings of relationships. Created Adam and Eve, man and woman. said relationship with each other and relationship with me. God's behind that. He's behind the beginning of work. He commissioned work. Fill the earth and subdue it. That's what God claimed to do. Claimed to ask us to do. The beginning of choice. Freedom. Offered by God to mankind with some advice about how to live in that freedom. There's the beginning of disorder and disobedience. When mankind decides to reject God. All about God. There's the beginnings of death. The consequences introduced by God as a result of disobedience towards him. There's the beginnings of pride. I can do better than you, God. I'm going to do it my way. I'm better than you. I'm going I'm to... Live my life the way that I want to live my life and I don't care about you. That's the beginning of pride through rebellion against God. And then there's the beginning of hope. Where God, 
looks to repair, redeem, and restore and renew everything. It's all there in the beginning, in the book of beginnings. God saying, hello, are we listening? That's one of the meanings of the book of Genesis. The other meaning of the word is development or generational, generations. Which is why the book of Genesis is also a book about loads of different generations of people who over the course of history have either chosen to reject God and lead their lives in ignorance of him or accept God and lead their lives in pursuance of him. It's all about the generations of God. Some wanting to receive him and say he's the best thing I've ever found, the best person I've ever found, the best relationship I've ever had. And then other generations of people who've gone completely the other way and done everything they possibly can to do the complete opposite of what God wants them to do. And this morning, as we sit in our seat, I wonder which generational camp you are in. Part of the reason for the song that I sang this morning was a recognition that over thousands of years there's been many men and women who have pursued God who love God, who know God, who know that he's the best person to know in life. Literally thousands of years of being rooted in love in God. I'm in the generational camp that says God is great. He's there, he's real, his son died for me, and what a relationship, what a saviour. But you might be in a generational camp that thinks a load of rubbish, Gus. Total load of rubbish. You may be from an atheistic point of view this morning, thinking there isn't even a God and I wish people like me would shut up and go home. I thank you for even being here today, if that's you. But whatever camp you're in, you are extremely welcome. Extremely welcome. I don't, I don't mind what camp you're in, because life is different camps. Life is different generations. The Bible has different generations in it. So the, the book of beginnings has origins of God, if you like, origins of mankind, origins of relationship, generations of people that follow God or don't follow God. And within it, here comes our new series, an introduction to Abraham, because he's in the book of Genesis. He's there in the book of Genesis in, chap- in chapter 11, 12, and on we go from there. And the reason that Abraham is so important in the book of Genesis is because he's become known over the generations as the father of faith, the original in faith, the, the patriarch of patriarchs. He's the one. He's the one that we trace it all the way back to, say, man, Abraham's journey and his faith in God, that's changed civilization as we know it. Sounds like something from Star Trek. But actually, it's Abraham. J.J. Abrams wrote Star Trek, didn't they? <laughs> As a side. So when Adrian kicked the series off last week, he kicked it off with a kind of big picture view on why we're going into this whole adventure with Abraham, or Abraham as he was originally called, which is one which says God wants to grab hold of mankind and pull them into his plans and purposes because it's all gone a bit awry. And there's a promise in Genesis 12, verse 2 and 3, that Adrian unpacked a little bit last week, that we're going to look at quickly here, which was God grabbing hold of this man, Abraham, and giving him the most ridiculous promise that you can ever imagine. We're going to spend a little bit more time this morning just reminding ourselves how ridiculous that promise was. And then we're going to see how how Abraham took some steps to actually start working out the promise. What was the promise? Genesis 12, verse 2 and 3, he said, God says this to Abraham. He says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God speaking to Abraham. Why is this so outrageous? 
I'm going to tell you why. Because Abraham was a complete nobody living in a city called Ur of the Chaldeans in about 2,000 years BC, and he lived in a completely godless society. A completely godless society. He wasn't a man of God who was already in a relationship with God. He was in a completely unchurched, unchristian, non-Christian, no-churched, no concept of God whatsoever society he's in. Did you know that? Completely outside of God. Joshua 24, verse 2. This is Joshua talking to the people of God about the history of Abraham. And he says this. This is what the Lord says, the God of Israel. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the river Euphrates and worshipped other gods. They worshipped other gods. The family of Abraham, dad Terah, worshipped other gods. And that's what people in Ur did, Ur of the Chaldeans, where Abraham was from. They, where they worshipped other gods. They served other gods. There was a huge, structured, three-tiered temple in Ur that was devoted to a god called uh, Nana, or Suin, or Sin. And that's what all the people did. They devoted their time and their energy to serving false gods, other gods. They even sacrificed to these other gods, children and babies. It's hard-hitting, nasty stuff. That's the culture that Abraham was in. He was from a pagan background with a pagan father practicing pagan rituals. And all of a sudden, it's not like, ooh, Nice old Abraham that's got some kind of relationship with God. All of a sudden we've got God reaching out to someone that's got no understanding of him whatsoever. He even married his half-sister, Sarai. And again, let's just, let's just catch this one. I'm just giving you a little bit more background this week than we had last week. Adrian did some headlines last week and he told us he was going to. This week, a little bit of detail to get us into the, the understanding of who it is we're walking with over the next few weeks. Abraham married his half-sister Sarai. What does that mean? Let me just tell you. His wife, sorry, his dad was called Terah. Great name for a dad. Terah. You frightened of your dad? Sure bet I am. <laughs> Terah. Terah has a baby with a woman who isn't Abraham's mum. Got that? We might call that an affair in our society. So he has a baby with someone who isn't Abraham's mum. And then, when she grows up, he marries her. He marries the daughter. Got it? That's what a half-sister is. Now, I don't want to make us feel uncomfortable this morning. There might be some people here who have got half-brothers or half-sisters. And the idea of marrying them is a bit of an odd one. The only point I'm making is Abraham's not squeaky-clean Christian loving Jesus. Although, of course, he can't love Jesus quite yet because he needs to have faith in the future for that. <laughs> Get your theology right, Mr. Rose, Angus. <laughs> Abraham was a pagan man from a pagan family in a pagan city, and he was as far away from God as you could ever be. So what? Here's the rub for all of us as a church. Here's the rub for all of us if you're visiting here this morning. You can feel as though you're as far away from God as you can ever be and yet God can still break into your life. You can be a million miles away from God in the worst situation you could probably ever imagine, in a pagan society doing pagan rituals, the things that you probably even feel ashamed of doing, and God can break in and, and speak to you, meet you, and reach out for you. 
What an amazing encouragement that is. An amazing encouragement. And a huge encouragement on the, on, on the fact that Abraham was the guy who is the father of the faith. This guy that was completely miles, millions of miles away from him in terms of any kind of relationship, God reached out for him, grabbed hold of him, and Abraham was completely changed. And boy, most of us are sitting here as a result of that moment today. That on its own is inexplicable in my view. God giving a promise to this guy that he would have a great name, blessed by God, peoples on the earth would be blessed by him, outrageous, inexplicable, out there. God did it. God called him and grabbed hold of him, got his attention. Don't know how exactly, little bits of tippet, nip, uh, snippets in the Bible that show us, but God did it. The other bit about the whole thing, this promise, it was completely, 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 as many times as you say completely as you want to, completely ridiculous. Completely ridiculous. Not only have we got Mr. Pagan, if you like, that God has somehow got to wrestle to become Mr. Godly, but he's also got this situation where he says, look, I'm going to bless generations through you. So Mr. Pagan, you're going to become Mr. Godly, and Mr. and Mrs. Godly, you're going to have loads of children that are going to be loads of little children godlies all the way through life. Big problem, as we know, because again, Adrian mentioned it last week, Sarai, his wife, his half-sister, was barren and had no children. How barren was Sarai? It's a stupid point to make. She was barren. She had no children. We know that Abraham was 75 years old when God encountered him from this scripture. If you read back into Genesis 11, and this is the bit I find fascinating, you, find, you read about the generation, the generations back from Abraham. And you find that his, great, his, great, his granddad, sorry, he was about 29 years old when he had his first son. Granddad was called Nahor. His great-granddad was called Sug. I always want to call it Smaug. It's Sug. He was 30 when he had his first son. His great-granddad was Ru, not a kangaroo, but a man. He was 32 when he had his first son. And so it goes back through the generations, that all the generations in Abraham's family, we don't know about his dad, Terah, by the way, so I can't include him, but all the other ones had their first son around the age of 28, 29, 30, 31. They were all having their sons at that point in time. It's all there in the, his in the history, in the Bible. And we come to Abraham, and he's 75 years old, and Sarai, his wife, is barren and has no children. And he's seen everybody else do it through his generation. So she's not just barren, she's like, this is shockingly barren. Because this is coming count, uh, complete counter against the whole family background up to this point in time. Can you see then how God says, oh, I'm going to make you great, and going to make a great nation, and there's going to be generations of people blessed through you. It's ridiculous. He's a pagan. He's suffering pagan rituals, in a pagan family, with a pagan dad, called terror. Shocking. His wife's barren, and he's a half-sister. The whole thing's a complete and utter mess. It's not a beautiful little Christian story. It's messy and dirty. And yet, God breaks in and gets hold of this man and changes everything. And he does become the father of the faith. He does become the original of the faith. He does become the pa patriarch of the faith. And the reason he does, and it tells us in Romans 4 verse 3, is because Adrian, uh, Abraham what? Adrian? Hey, hello. <laughs> Listen to this, Adrian Hurst. You've made it, mate. <laughs> Abraham did what? He believed God. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He believed God. God broke into his life, unreachable as he was, 
heard the voice of God, he encountered God, and his life completely turned upside down. He began to pursue God, he believed God for the promises, he moved in the promises of God, and then everything changed. That's incredible. On its own, that's incredible. If you remember nothing over the whole series that we're in in Abraham, and Abraham, remember his beginnings. Way, way, way away from God. And God said, I'm having you. And he said, all right, then off he went. Now, I'm not saying that he didn't make mistakes along the way, as we will see even today. But I do want us to know that wherever you're at, again, I'll say it, in life, whether you feel close to God or far away from God, God can reach into your life and make a difference. So that's the background. I've been excited about the background on its own today, but it's not my job to kick the series off all over again. Well, I'm in danger of doing that. What I do want to do is take us on. And so we're going to look at Genesis 12 and Genesis 13 this morning. We're going to read Genesis 12. We're not going to read Genesis 13. So if you want to check what I'm saying right at the end, you need to go home and read it yourselves. It is in the Bible. So if you've got your Bibles, you might want to open them. And the title of my message is Go in Fear, Go in Faith. Go in Fear, Go in Faith. So we're going to read Genesis chapter 12, and we're going to see how Abraham begins this journey of faith that God has called him on. So Genesis 12, dipping into a little bit of the verses that we looked at last week and then so on from there. Verse 4. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. I'll tell you in a minute why he set out from Haran and not Ur. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they'd accumulated, and the people they'd acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abraham travelled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. In brackets, not unusual, it was their land. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hi towards the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. Then he built an altar to the Lord and called to the name of the Lord. Then Abraham set out and continued to towards the Negev. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know you're a beautiful woman. In fact, I'll say that again. I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the, Egypt when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me. But you will, but you will, but, sorry, they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abraham went to Egypt, the, Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abraham well for her sake, and Abraham acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. But the Lord afflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife Sarai. Now Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? He said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? So that I took her to be my wife. Now then, here's your wife. Take her 
and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abraham to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. That's the story. Quick backtrack to the, con to the context of the story. I, I, as I mentioned as I was reading it, he, he moved from Haran in this story, not from Ur. I've already told you he's from Ur with that big pagan background. How does that work? Why is he not moving from where he was born and, and where we know him set to be? In Acts chapter 7, we get the answer to that question. Acts chapter 7 is when Stephen, who's a bloke that was uh, trying to proclaim the good news of Jesus in his day, unsettled the peace. The high priests and chief priests of the day didn't like it. He was pulled in front of a court called the Sanhedrin court, and he started explaining why he was basically proclaiming the name of Jesus as a Lord and Savior. As part of his defense, he mentions Abraham and his story. And he says in Acts 7, verse 2 to 4, he says this, Brothers and fathers, he's talking to the Sanhedrin, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the, the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. This is a moment where the Bible gives you something about something that's not in the bit that you think it should give you. But it is there. And sometimes that works. The creation story is a little bit like that there. You can learn about creation in Genesis, but you can actually learn about creation in Psalms as well, did you know? An aside on a Sunday morning. So here we've got some information that we don't see in Genesis. And what we don't see is that God has appeared to Abraham while he was still in Ur. And he's therefore, as a result of God's call, saying, look, I'm going to go to the land I'm going to give you. He's moved from Ur. And he's set off on a journey prior to where we are in Genesis 12. It looks like what he did is he set off with his father and his household, and they settled in Haran. So Haran became a sticking point, if you like, for the journey of God that God would want Abraham to be on. But they did move from Ur, and there's a map that uh, Agnes will chuck up. You might not be able to see it, but it shows you a little bit about that little that journey. So Ur's right down the bottom in the, in the uh, right-hand corner of the map. Haran, the pinnacle of the triangle, and then you can see it goes back down into the promised land, quote-unquote. So that's just a bit of background, and the reason we need that background is because it, it brings some context in terms of Genesis 12, when Abraham and his household moved from Haran, because this time they moved from Haran without his father and his father's household. And it's as if Abraham is moving away, from, again, from that sort of pagan ritualistic background more into the plans of God. He's now in faith again for the next move. That's background. So what we have is, is Abraham and Sarai and Lot traveling into the promised land, which is Canaan, and going there and getting there. They go straight there. It's not as if they're in the desert for 40 years. They actually go to where God says, I'm going to give you the land. And when they get to the land, they find that the Canaanites, as I mentioned as I read it, are already in the land, which I said is not unusual because it's where they live. So that's okay. It's all, it's all very normal at this point. And when they get to the land, what do they do? Well, they've, they've, they've come to a new country. It's like being on holiday when we go to, you know, wherever you go on holiday. When you get to on holiday, you get in your tent or you get in your little cottage or wherever you get into. You get your food in, you get a few things sorted out, and then you go out exploring, don't you? You have a few days of just exploring where you've got to. And this is what Abraham and his entourage did. They started exploring the land. So they go up to different places in the land in order to, to, to see where it is that God has given them. And that's, that's common sense in my view. There's nothing wrong with checking out where you've got to. So Shechem they go to, and create an altar there and say thank you to God for getting there. They go to Bethel, they go to Ai, and then they end up in the Negev. And the reason they go to the Negev is because Bethel and Ai are prosperous. 
The river of Jordan is running through that area. And there are lots and lots of Canaanites there because it's a good place to live. And they don't want to unsettle the Canaanite people at this stage. They know they've got the promise that God's going to give them the land, but they don't want to unsettle the Canaanite people. So Abraham thinks, rather than stay there, let's go south to the Negev, where there's less people, and we can kind of quietly just make a base for ourselves. Now the problem with the Negev is it's not as nice as north. So it's dry and arid, a bit more desert-like. It's harder living. And the whole thing is exacerbated by the fact that a famine then hits town. So Abraham and his entourage, they've gone to the Negev to make life for themselves there quietly. It's already difficult, and then a famine comes along. What are they going to do? What are they going to do when the famine comes along? You've got to bear in mind, at the moment, they're right in the heart of God's plan for them. The promise, they're walking in the promise, the f- walking in the faith of the promise that God has given them. And now something comes along, now something's got difficult, what are they going to do? I don't know what you do when you know that you're walking in the plan of God in some way, shape or form, and then life gets difficult. What do you do? Do you, wa- do you, do you, do you watch? Do you wait? Do you pray? Do you ask God for what's going on? Or do you immediately do something you think, I'm going to sort this out? I know that I can be someone who immediately wants to sort things out. If things go wrong, I want to sort things out. And I have to wrestle hard to stop when things come against me. Think, pray, wait, watch, see what God's saying, then take some action. Many of us will know that uh, Ian and Caroline Walker, who's been part of the church uh, for 14 years, are moving to Leeds. In fact, they moved this week. They're still around for a couple more weeks, but they've moved this week. And part of their moving process, as as anybody would have to if they're moving from Birmingham to another city, is sorting out schools, sorting out houses, sorting out finances for the, for the move, sorting out the new job and the location, all the rest of it, new church, all of that kind of thing. Loads of stuff going on, huge amount of stress. A couple of weeks ago, just before they were due to move this week, their house sale here fell through. So uh, uh, It's massive. They had all of a sudden, th- it was looking like, how were they ever going to be able to move because their buyer had dropped out? Now, to their credit, all they did was say, well, there's not a lot we can do about it. We're just going to wait, and we're going to watch, and we're going to pray. I'm going to ask God to do something about it. And within days, a new buyer had come along to buy their house that actually was offering more money than the one that had dropped out. Hurrah. Credit to the walkers, I say. Because in a moment of high stress, they didn't panic, although they had some huge highs and lows through the whole process. They just said, we're just going to give this to God. God will pull through. What did Abraham do in this situation where he's moved to the Negev, he's made it to the promised land, he's looking for, the, for God to outwork the promise of giving him the promised land. What did he do when the famine hit town? Well, he didn't do what the walkers did. He didn't watch, he didn't wait, he didn't pray, he didn't see what God would do. He fleed immediately to Egypt. He went to Egypt. The father of faith, faltering in fear, the first opportunity he had to do so. So he gets the big introduction as the patriarch, the original in faith. He's in the promised land. He's done a wise thing and settled in the quiet area of the promised land. But as soon as the famine comes, he thinks, what am I going to do to sort this out? I'm going to do something. And he moves completely outside the plans of God at that moment. It's hard to be critical because isn't that what you and I do often? The walkers didn't do it, credit, but I know sometimes I do. When things get hard, I think I'm just going to do what I'm going to do. And I'm compelled to do what I want to do because I think I can sort it out. And that's what Abraham did here. Hard to be hard on him because we do it ourselves. So he leaves Negev in fear of the famine and he arrives in Egypt 
in fear for his wife. Fear in going. Going in fear. And this, this part of the story does my head in, to be honest with you. It absolutely does my head in. Because he goes to Egypt knowing, as he goes, that Sarai's going to be in trouble as she goes. Why? Everybody who lived around Egypt knew that, that Egypt was a rich and prosperous land. Everybody knew that uh, Egypt was ruled over by rich and prosperous pharaohs. And rich and prosperous pharaohs could do whatever they liked with whoever they liked, whenever they liked. Everything was at, that, at their disposal. And everybody knew that rich and prosperous pharaohs had an eye for the women. And the thing about Sarai was, according to Abraham in verse 11, she was a beautiful woman. A beautiful woman. Her name means princess, by the way, so perhaps she was a particularly beautiful woman. But Abraham says, I know what a beautiful woman you are. Word of advice for you husbands. That's a good line to use. <laughs> I know what a beautiful woman you are. I say it to my wife all the time, don't I, darling? She's not here today. <laughs> it, it's a great, yeah, we'll ask her next week, yeah. So. It's the sort of thing we say to our wives all the time. Because it builds your wife up. It's an aside point. It's a marriage matters question mark point in the message this morning. Abraham was saying it, but it would appear to be true. It would appear to be true that Sarai was a bit of a stunner. And he was absolutely petrified, thinking, look, if I go to Egypt, which I'm going to do, even though I'm outside of God's plans, with this beautiful woman, and she's known as my wife, I'm her husband and, and she's the wife, then what's going to happen is that the Egyptians are going to say, that's a nice piece of stuff. We want her for the pharaoh. She's coming into the royal harem and dot, 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 da, da, da. And in her coming in, Abraham would, see, would have been seen as an unnecessary nuisance. What do the Egyptians do with unnecessary nuisances? Well, they don't lock them up. They knock them out. He knew his life was in, in danger. This is massive. So, I'm Abraham. I'm in the desert in the Negev. I'm in God's plans and purposes, and everything's brilliant. Famine comes. Oh, I'm going to go to Egypt. Bit of a problem. My wife's in danger. I know. I'll tell everybody she's my half-sister or my sister. Because let's remember, that's true, isn't it? It's true, and he does it again in a few chapters later. It's true. Sarai is his sister. And in telling everybody that she's his sister, sh he can sell her into the royal harmony, not have himself killed for her to go in there. So I'm selling my wife into sex and separation and defilement. That's nice, isn't it? And as much as I want to bring something light and friendly and nice to soften it, I think this is a really dark, demonic moment for Abraham in following the plans and purposes of God that he wasn't doing at that moment in time. I'm going to sell my wife into prostitution. And that's what he does. It's exactly what he does. So not only does he, is he, is he throw her into the royal harem, but as a result, he gets camels and donkeys and men servants and maid servants and cattle. Bring it on. Bring it on. Look at me. I've got a new TV, a new video, a new camcorder. I've got a beautiful new home because I've sold my wife into prostitution. We laugh. We'd never do that, would we? No, of course we wouldn't because we're all godly men and women. But this is a man who, who, who knew God a little bit. He was on a journey with God and yet he did it. I find it inexplicable that he did this. And it's right there at the beginning of the story. 
what a father of faith Abraham is. Let's follow him, ladies and gentlemen. It's an absolute shocker. Absolute shocker. Do you know what happens in this absolute shocker of a moment? This is good news, this bit. God saves the day. God saves the day. Why does God save the day? Because that's what God does. God saves the day. God saves. God rescues. God repairs. God redeems. God brings people out of darkness into light. That's what he does. That's what God does. God rescues us when we're in a complete and utter mess, in a hole. When you're as far away from God as you can ever be, God says, ah, come here, I can rescue you. Come with me, come with me, come with me. God saves the day. How does he save the day? He takes authority in the situation and he brings disease and sickness upon Pharaoh and his courtiers. God is sovereign over disease and sickness. Discuss. But he brings it. He brings it upon Pharaoh and somehow Pharaoh realises that something's up. Now we don't know the detail here, but somehow he thinks something's up. Why am, I, why am I getting all this hardship and this persecution and this trouble and this sickness? What's going on? And I'm sure in some of his investigations he finds out the truth. He finds out the truth that Sarai is Abraham's wife, not his sister. And it's there in the scripture. And so what happens is he says, look, what, why have you done this to me? Why have you put this upon me? Why do I have this, this pain and this affliction on me? What are you trying to do? And do you know what? This is the moment of even more inexplicable mind-muddling shock and horror. If I was fair at that point, I would have taken Abraham and I would have whacked him big and hard. And so he's escaped death before... He's not escaping death now. He's made a complete mockery of me as the leader of the land. He's shown me up in front of the courtiers. He's defiled me. He's abused me. It's almost a treasonable act that he's done. He's bamboozled me. Make himself look better than me. I'm not having that. You're out of here with your head on this stick. And Sarai as well. Because the anger and the angst and the horror that he would have felt towards her is all there. A whole, a whole opportunity to Pharaoh's completely go whap. Whap, blah. But what does Pharaoh do? This is incredible. He lets them go. You just read that. He just lets them go. Completely scot-free, no strings attached. It's absolutely fine. Off you go. Who's behind that? God. God's behind that. Abraham and Sarah did not get what they deserved. They got freedom rather than death. Oh, does that ring a bell? Does that ring a bell? Absolutely amazing. Scot-free. More than that. More than that. All the cattle, all the donkeys, all the maidservants, all the men servants, all the camels that Pharaoh had given Abraham as he sold his wife into prostitution, he said, you can keep those as well. Isn't that inexplicable? Isn't that incredible? Doesn't that ring a bell? The undeserved grace and mercy of God. God saves. God saves Abraham and Sarai in this moment. And God saves us, doesn't he? Through the death and through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We deserve death. We deserve separation. We deserve annihilation. 
We deserve no relationship with the God of the originals and God of the beginning because we rebel against him, we reject him, we ignore him. That's what we do as the humans. Even when we say we love him, we know that we don't because we go our own way. But what does God do? He always forgives. He always offers grace. He always says, come back to me, come back to me, come back to me, come back to me. And then it's grace and mercy and love, undeserved, that he just keeps throwing on us and on us and on us. And I think it's an incredible moment for us to think, thank you very much, God. A little bit like Abram and Sarah, they didn't get what they deserved. They got grace and mercy and freedom and forgiveness. Father of the faith. Something for us to headline in our brains. It's there for us today. So off they go, and into chapter 13 we go, and don't worry, it's about three minutes. Into chapter 13 we go, how would they have gone into chapter 13? Back to the Negev. If you were Abraham and Sarai, how would you have gone? I'll tell you how you'd have gone. You'd have gone knowing that you absolutely departed from God's way in the first instance. Going down to Egypt was a wrong move. They'd have gone knowing that they absolutely deserved death as a result of what had happened. They'd have known that. And they'd have gone knowing that they absolutely, definitely, 100% escaped death as well. So that's how they went back to the Negev. They'd have also gone knowing, is God with me anymore or not? Have I blown it? Have I got away with this? Will God come with me anymore on this journey? Or has he just rescued me and that's it? What's it going to look like? Is the promise over? Was it a great promise that now is completely blown out of the water? That's what they'd have been thinking too. And when you read in chapter 13, you, you're looking to see what is Abraham's heart going to be like as a result of this episode. And it's given away straight away by the story about Lot and him looking at the land and dividing it up. What happens very quickly? They realize there's too many of them to cope with being in the same area of land. They look across the land of Canaan and Abraham says, listen Lot, you have a look and take what you want. You take the best if you want the best and I'll have the worst if you want me to have the worst. And that's exactly what happens. Lot takes the best, Abraham's left with the worst. The worst of God's promise, if you like. However, in giving Lot the best and basically saying, I'll take whatever's less, you can see a humble heart a humble heart that's been changed. It doesn't matter, I'm not going to do it my way anymore. I'm not going to take the lead. I'm not going to make wrong moves. I'm not going to claim land that isn't mine. I'm just going to take whatever's there and leave the rest to God because he'll sort it out. Which is why right at the end of chapter 13, God comes back on the scene to reaffirm the promise that he'd given in chapter 12. Chapter 13, verse 14 to 17 says this, look around from where you are, God to Abraham, to the north, to the south, to the east, to the west. All the land that you see, including that which I've just given to Lot, which is the best of the land, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. God saying, you're with me, I'm with you, everything's okay, let's carry on. When we mess up, God comes back to us. If he finds a humble, repentant heart, he'll say, listen, everything's okay. I forgive you through the blood of Jesus. Come with me, come with me, come with me. There's still a lot of journeying to do. Go in faith with God rather than go in fear 
against God. That's what it's all about. And in closing this morning, I want to draw all this together in terms of what was brought right at the end in worship, which is this. Are we waiting on God? Are you in this place this morning where you think you're as far away from God as you could ever be? Or in a situation where you think, I don't know what's going on in my life with God. I don't even know if he exists anymore. Whatever it is, the word came, let's wait. Let's do what Abraham didn't do. It was a word that came in worship. Let's wait on God. Let's get our eyes and our hearts fixed on God. Let's perhaps vocalize, whether internally or externally, what are the things that we're really struggling in God in. Let's give them to God, and then what will happen? Breakthrough will come. That's what came during the worship. And then as we wait on God, what happens? Isaiah, as was prophesied right at the end, God will renew our strength. Is that what we want this morning? I think that's what God wants us to have, even if we don't want it. And if we're going to be men and women who are faithful in receiving what God wants us to have, then let's just take that thing, man, does that apply to me? And if it does, I want to wholeheartedly pursue God for the rest of my days because he's worth pursuing. Why don't we stand? I will pray quickly and then we'll close. God, I just want to say thank you that no one is beyond your reach. I want to thank you for the example of Abraham. I want to thank you that it's an example that's right through Scripture. The men and women mess up, you still come piling straight back into their lives. I want to thank you that you have called us to know you and love you. And Lord, wherever we're at, you, you just love us. And we're here for you, Lord God. I pray, Lord God, today you do something in us, Lord God that helps us to wait a moment, pause for a moment, consider for a moment where we are with you. And Lord, if there are things that we need to name that we know we haven't given over to you, or even things that we know that we're doing expressly against you, Father, we'd be honest enough to say, these are they, have them, Lord, lay it down, and then you take us on in faith for the next step of our journey. Lord, that's our heart today. Change us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. Consciousness is quite hot in here. Please do uh, grab your children in OKC in the Oasis Suite as quickly as possible. Uh, if you want prayer for anything...